0: Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and Corey Bryant and I are here this morning. And so we're well up into September. Lots of fields. Look like they're ready to plant, Tom. There's a <laughs> lot of stuff rolled up, road or rode up and rolled excuse me oh, I was in Brooksville yesterday and they were finishing
1: some fields up over there and that's that's the odd thing when you're over there because usually they're a little quote unquote behind the Delta they're not behind the delta
0: this year so we'll get to the fall burn down in a few weeks when we get a little bit closer to that time but I feel like right now this is a bit big time as we're wrapping up harvest and if you don't have any cotton, this is a big time for soil sampling and looking at soil test results and either executing or making a plan for next year. So that's why we invited Corey in with us this morning. So Corey, thanks for coming over, man. Thanks for having me. Corey's got a difficult life right now. His wife managed to shatter her ankle a few weeks ago. <clears throat> so in addition to agronomist, Corey's also a primary caregiver. So god bless you dude. And uh, I have been informed I'm not a very good primary caregiver. I got my first 9
2: weeks report card <laughs> and I did not meet expectations.
1: Well, now you have somewhere to go. But that's you right. You can start low. You just need to set the bar and excel. That's you just have to remember that you've got to start somewhere. I
0: suspect that none of us would be great primary caregivers. I mean, out of necessity, yes, out of desire, no. Oof, oh,
2: it's definitely
0: not easy. Corey and Valerie also have a going on three-year-old. So there's a, he's, he's not just taking care of Valerie. He's also taking care of the little one too.
2: I like to call her my tiny terrorist <laughs> because there are no
1: negotiations. And, oh, it's, it's and, their and, way or the highway. That's, th- that's exactly right. The world is theirs. You're just in it.
2: That's right. And we're, we're also pretty sure she's the uh, runner of the local daycare mafia. Uh, she's the Mafia Don. Oh, I'm, sh- I'm sure. that's She gets that from her mother. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and- a, it's okay. She doesn't listen to this, so I'm safe.
1: Not yet. Somebody will hold on to it for her.
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Blackmail. I'm aware. Corey, I was bouncing around in my mind what I wanted to ask you this morning. For those of you that don't know, Corey's in the National Guard. He's been deployed Twice. Twice now. So you spent a significant amount of time overseas over the last few years. So, Corey, in your travels, what is the most interesting, could be good, could be bad thing you've eaten when you have been out of the U.S.? So I've been, the only place I've eaten
2: out of the U.S. has been, we had a layover in Ireland, airport food, and then Kuwait and Iraq. Probably the most interesting, they had a a little restaurant on the base I was on in Iraq, and they had a meat lover's pizza, which we're in a Muslim country, (laughs) so pork is like a no-go, and it was a a local guy that ran it. I decided to order it one day. It had Vienna sausages and little cut-up hot dogs on it, along with some Hamburger meat and something they called pepperoni or Canadian bacon. I, I ordered that one time, and, and that was
1: enough for me. <laughs> Should have called that the mystery meat lovers pizza.
0: Oof. Places where Vienna sausage could be considered a delicacy. Yeah,
2: Hot dogs. I, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I enjoy Vienna sausages. Buy them from a gas station and eat them when I'm on the road, but I just somebody about it being on a pizza that wasn't really that, that appetizing.
0: Tom, when I was growing up, it wasn't Vienna sausage. It was Viena sausage
2: mm-hmm.
0: for no other reason And that's the way my grandfather said it. The Austrians would probably take exception to that. Just... I say that because you recently went to Vienna. I did. And if you had told my grandfather that, he would have said you went to Viena.
1: We've hit that point in the year where soil sampling, soil testing, evaluating those results and making decisions for 2024 are important. What do listeners need to know about soil testing? When's the appropriate time? What's the best depth to consider when you're looking into nutrient availability and nutrition for 2024?
2: To look at the best depth, six inches is our recommended depth. Pretty much every lab that you send a a sample to, they're going to assume it's a six inch depth unless you tell them different. So that's important because if you pull a 3-inch core, go to 3-inch depth, and you don't tell the lab, uh, it could overestimate what you actually have in the field because they're, they're going to get their parts per million, and they're going to do their calculations based on a 6-inch depth, 2 million pound acre furrow slice when actually your sample is only covering a million pounds so it could overestimate conversely if you go deeper you know there are some people that they want to pull an 8 inch sample if you don't tell the lab that you are different from 6 inches you can overestimate if you're not if if you're less than 6 and you could underestimate if you're over 6 inches So that six inches is is our standard. Um, That's approximately 60% of our root mass is in that six inches uh, for the majority of our crops. And so that's kind of why we go with the the six-inch depth.
0: What would prompt someone to want to do an eight-inch sample? I mean, I get the the four-inch, but what would prompt somebody to want to do an eight? So an eight or deeper, uh, there's people... may
2: want to go deeper thinking, you know, that they do have roots below six inches. There's years we've seen it, especially in cotton, with sulfur deficiency, really wet, early season, uh, and the roots just aren't moving down and will show nutrient deficiency, especially sulfur, because that that sulfur is moved down in the profile. Um, And then when it dries out and the roots go down looking for water, they come out, That's, you know, some people want to sample deeper, thinking, if I go deeper, I'll capture more of the nutrients that are in the soil. Maybe I don't actually need to apply as much as what they're telling me I need to apply at six inches.
0: If I do that and then let the lab know, then they'll just adjust the the recommended ranges based on the sampling depth.
2: Right, right. They'll... They'll adjust their calculations to how many pounds you have per acre out there. It's really, you know, not going to a- adjust your recommendation that much. It- it'll look like you have more, but you're covering more soil with that, so your, your recommendation really just kind of stays the same.
0: Timing, Corey. We've gotten some rain over the past couple weeks in places some people more than others. Balancing logistics and weather wins the optimum time to pull a sample.
2: I know we have a lot of people, they want to get out there right after harvest. Really, we would, we would like to give the, the biomass, the residue that's left in the field, a little bit of time. It may not start breaking down, but nutrients, like especially potassium, the rain in water, you know, this time of year rain will leach that potassium out of the non-decayed plant matter residue and, and go ahead and get it back in the soil. So most recommendations are, you know, anywhere between late October, middle to late October through February or March. There's research out there that shows of Fall soil sampling will report lower nutrient values versus a spring soil sample. Just for, for that reason there, residue has decayed, nutrients have leached out of it, have been released from it. A spring applica- or soil sampling may give you a, a more accurate of what's out there. But the, the data doesn't support only doing a spring. Um, if you're worried about pH, you know, you think your pH is too low, which here in the Delta, you know, my questions have been, how do I lower my pH? But if you're worried about that, think you're going to need lime, then definitely pull those soil samples in the fall. Starting around now, especially now that we've got a little bit of rain, got a little more moisture back in, the profile, that'll make sampling easier. And it helped with with accuracy a little bit. So timing wise, you know, there's not a magic bullet just if anywhere between October and February, March, uh, depending on what crop you're planting and, and your desired planting date. So once you pick a time of year, the key factor there is just to stick with that time of year as best you can. If you know, you got rained out last year and, and you soil sampled a field for the first time this year, so you did it in January. Don't come back this fall, October, November, and soil sample it. Try to keep that field on February so that you can, you can have an accurate representation of what nutrients are doing in that field.
0: All things considered, labor, time, farm size, farm configuration, can you make a guess of an adjustment, and not you personally, but can you adjust the recommended rate a little bit if you're generally pulling your samples a little bit early? So like situation dictates, I need to go on out there in September and get it done. Can I adjust my recommendation a little bit to account for that?
2: You can adjust a little bit. I'm trying to remember what the data shows, how much that is. Don't quote me on this, but I believe it's, you know, around a 30 pounds per acre difference fall versus spring.
1: Okay. Well, this year in particular, when you're talking about how dry it's been, shouldn't you cheat more towards doing that? soil sampling in the spring with the hope that we're going to have a little bit moisture in the winter and see how you're going to balance out then by the time we get to the spring?
2: Right. That that could be a, a good thing. Like I say this, you know, August, September, we, we've been really dry. So that kind of gets into another question I've had a lot of is, is what's too wet and what's too dry? There's not a good answer on that. the The best answer we've been able to come up with is If the field is good to be plowed, if you've got enough moisture, but you're also dry enough to you know disk it, pull beds, to to work the ground, then it's got enough moisture to soil sample. If I went out to a lot of my fields right now, I would probably say they're too dry, just because I wouldn't be able to get the probe in the ground to six inches. If you have to, it's dry enough. You have to get out there and. Beat that probe in with a hammer or something, or, or get the big guy on your crew. You know, I'm about 150. There's no way I could push a probe into six inches right now. You know, th- that's too dry. If you have to put the tracks on your side by side and you can't hardly get the sample out of the probe, it's probably too wet.
0: Related to that, Corey, what about too fluffy? You know, like, on, oh, uh, right, like going on, a, on a bed that's, maybe the bed's been there for a couple of weeks, but it hadn't rained on it yet. And so you're, when you stick that probe in, you're not even really getting <laughs> six inches because it either. You're you bottoming know, out, it. so yeah. you're not
1: getting a good composite right. sample within the actual probe itself. And you just, it goes in so easily that.
2: Right, yeah. So that would, you know, definitely would want to wait on a, a rain for that. Because a lot of the wet and dry comes back to sample integrity. Soil sampling is not an exact science. Dr. Slayton, Nathan Slayton in Arkansas, did some work. He went out and pulled a sample at 9 a.m. in this spot and then went back at 4 p.m. and pulled a sample right next to it, as close as he could get, and got different, different values. And so the, all soil testing is only as accurate as the, the sample you collect. So if you push in, and like I said that comes back to soil sample integrity, so if you go to put it in that fresh bed and you push it in six inches and you pull the probe out, well, I've only got four inches of soil in it, that's, that's not a good sample. I had that happen a lot this spring And, yeah, we we end up just waiting on the rain to come back because I stuck the probe in the ground eight times and came back with, like, two good samples. I was like, no, this this isn't going to work. We're going to be out here for weeks trying to get a good sample.
1: Well, it's about as bad as nematode samples. You're estimating what's there. It's not an exact numerical representation. It's the best estimate that you get based on how good the sample is And how good the washing procedure is when they actually remove and extract the nematodes from the soil sample that you provided. And if you're only taking it to less than the appropriate depth, you're missing nematodes. You're not liable to overestimate. If anything, you're going to underestimate. And that's not what you want to do in that particular situation, especially when you consider for something like fertilizer. It's all based on economics. So if you're putting out more than what you need, it's going to cost you more. And if you're putting out less than what you need, your yield will not equal what it could be on that particular soil class.
0: And I think the, another part of the value in what you are talking about is just having that information over time, whatever your schedule is, every other year, or every three years, but still having your yield history, field history, meaning crop history, yield history, and then that soil test information all playing together, kind of see if your numbers are accurate with where you expect they should be or, or where you want them to be.
2: Right, and, and that's one, one thing I, I think you two have probably heard me say a lot in our, our county meetings and everything, but a, a big thing I really push, definitely from a fertility standpoint, but you know, just just a general good agronomic practice in general is be a student of the field. And, and when I say that, I mean keep copious amounts of notes and just very detailed. You you look at you know th- these high yield guys. They kind of hate to bring them up because you know let's be what's what's the economics on that four hundred bushel corn. One hundred whatever bushel beans, you know that new record that was just set.
0: Two hundred something, or, like or two hundred yeah. something. Yeah,
2: but you know one thing I, I do like about a lot of a lot of those growers is how they are a student of the field. They have binders of yield data, soil test data, planting date data, all of that going back five, six, seven years, and, and they spend their winters. They duck hunt, they deer hunt, you know, they got time for that. But when they're not in the woods or they're not working on equipment, they are pouring through that data. And they're like, okay, well, planting date did this to me. Uh, Whenever, anytime I've been able to plant in this window, my yield's been here. If I was early, if I was late, yield went here or there. Based on planting date or yield, this is what my nutrient levels are doing in the soil Changing if if they change up in one year an application method they've been broadcasting fertilizer and they go to banding that they're going back into that data and looking to see how did that help me what did that do and especially in for fertility that is just very critical to to be a student of that and keep those records you know don't don't pull a soil test this year look at it lab says I need this or you know, if you're going to a commercial lab and you don't want to use their recommendations, so you get your reports and then you come and you look at Mississippi State's recommendations based on what you have. Don't just take that data, make your application and wad it up and throw it away. Put that in a binder. If you're soil sampling every three years, which is the current Mississippi State recommendation, keep that and when you sample three years from now, go back and look. What did my yields do across there? What, what did my fertility do in, in this time period? If, if you're sampling every year, still go back and look. If you're on a grid, are you, are you starting to get an equilibrium across that field? Um, are, are you getting grids you don't have to apply to, or you're just doing a maintenance rate? Or are you still having to apply a lot? And some of that may come back to it may tell you, you need to adjust your your sampling strategy. You know, maybe maybe you're not getting a a good sample or, I mean, there's just a lot of different things in there that that can cause that to change. One thing I just real quick want to cover, uh, soil sampling strategy, grid versus zone versus a composite. Uh, You know, a field composite, that's going to be the least accurate Uh, It is better than no soil sample. Grid and zone kind of pick your poison. They both have their benefits. They both have their downfalls. Main thing I want to say is we still want to cover as much of that area as possible, 15 to 20 cores per sample. So that means the, the one bag you're sending to the lab, you want to put that probe in the ground a minimum of 15 times running out to the middle of a two and a half acre grid, putting the probe in the ground one to three times in a real tight circle, you're leaving a lot of uncovered ground and not getting a good sample out of that. And in my mind, just just me thinking and talking, you might as well just do a field composite at that point. You know, the the key takeaway is soil sample results are only as good as the sample you send in, just like your deer processor. If you skin it and you give him hair,
0: you're getting hair back. Not untrue, Tom. I see you.
2: I mean, that, that's what my processor always tells me, so I just pay the extra 20 bucks to let him skin it.
1: I, I don't deal with that at all.
0: Okay, course, so we got a soil sample. We feel good about the soil sample. We got the soil test results back. So, which nutrients... Look to a fall application to apply or which ones do we need to wait to the spring?
2: With fall applications, the the only one that I am dead set on needs to go out in the fall and it, it's not even a nutrient. That's gonna be our lime. Of course. Um yeah. if if we've got a low pH, those fines, those those really fine particles can get in there and work quick, but it's still going to take time to adjust that and I like a spring application on everything uh, we're, we're getting more and more data out there and the, from around the country with regards to timings you know e- even in phosphorus that we kind of historically thought when we put it in the ground it doesn't move and, and we need to till it and get it incorporated uh, the data is even showing you know spring applications. It is moving, it is getting, especially these, these newer orthophosphates that, that we're applying. But, uh, you know, again, like I said, I understand logistics and farm size, and, and we just cannot put everything out in the spring. Um, so if we're going to do something in the fall, phosphorus is the one I, w- I would be most comfortable with. I would expect to get the least amount of loss from potassium or, or potash applications i mean if there's any way possible i would want those in the spring um and we can
0: take that all the way out into the crop
2: right, too, right? we we can i'm doing some work with it right now in soybeans wrapping up year 1 hopefully harvesting in you know a couple of weeks but a, a fall application and we we were going all the way out to 45 days 45 50 days after emergence with our applications data from arkansas says you know that they were going out to r1 um now that they were doing recovery applications um, but they were going out to r1 and still making maximal yield um so potash Cold water soluble, so rain or irrigation can incorporate that. Corn going out to tassel, uh, a lot of the data I've looked through, and uh, we can go out to tassel with a potash application in a recovery situation. I, I wouldn't want to wait that long, but if something happens, um, you know, we, we can. So we can go in season with that. Nitrogen, definitely do not want to put that out in the fall
0: oh yeah it just goes, that goes right outside. yeah
2: you won't have anything left um sulfur same thing you know that sulfate it's going to move just like our nitrogen definitely want that you know in the spring in season unless you're making a elemental sulfur which microbes have to break down into sulfate a usable form um then you know we, we can look at a fall application there So yeah, phosphorus, uh, if you're doing an elemental sulfur, those are the only ones I'm comfortable if we have to make a fall application because of logistics and farm size and and help. Those are the only ones I'm comfortable with in in the fall.
1: Everything else I, I would like to see in the spring. Corey, thanks so much for stopping in the studio, taking some time today to discuss these things. Super important.
2: But thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Good luck with your patient, Corey.
0: I, know <laughs> I you, appreciate I know that, a, too. You, I you, know you got, you got like, a few weeks left. Set
1: your bar low and attempt to move
0: up from there, man. That's, that's what we all expect. That's what we're trying. This would be an appropriate time for Tom to whistle patience, but he won't do it. No, I won't do it. Not today. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.